It's time to play like a jet with your host, Scott Mason. Play like a jet. What does that mean? Smith rifles that one to Mims. And that's a foot race. He's going to win. Touchdown, Baylor. Denzel Mims with another monster score of 70 yards. Five straight games, Anthony, where he's got a touchdown catch of over 20. That's deflected and picked up Mosey. He'll take it in. It's a pick six into the middle of that line and it's a touchdown big return for Crowder 85 yards there was contact with a quarterback and it's incomplete they got pressure on Prescott it was Adams who came blitzing in he'll hit immediately when he got the handoff you know and what? it's <laughs> the Q-inator. oh my gosh listen thank you from the TOJ Digital Studios, this is Play Like a Jet. My name is Scott Mason. You can follow me on Twitter at PlayLikeAJet1. And it's Wednesday, which means it's time for Midweek with Manish. Manish Meta covering the New York Jets for the New York Daily News. Manish, we're doing this one New York Jets training camp style, meaning that we're doing it over Zoom. <laughs> yeah, you were uh, the Zoom king before Zoom became king, Scott, so you should probably get some credit for that. I don't think I'm going to get credit, but I would love to get credit. So if you want to let them know, feel free. But Manish, one person that I don't think is going to be involved in the Zoom meetings is Jamal Adams. We've talked about that before, but he is going to be here for that fifth year. The Jets picked up his fifth year option. No big surprise here. Fait accompli. Now the question becomes whether or not Joe Douglas sits down with Adams representatives and gets a deal done. Right. Uh, look, it was an obvious decision to pick up Jamal's fifth-year option, and uh, for all those players in the first round that were drafted in 2017, uh, Monday, uh, May 4th, is the deadline to pick up the option. Uh, and because of the new rules of the CBA, uh, unfortunately for Jamal's class, it doesn't change the fact that these fifth-year options are guaranteed for injury only right now. They'll become fully guaranteed on the first day of the following league year, so the first day of the 2021 league year. Now, typically, that's in March. Who knows what the schedule is going to be like uh, because of the circumstances now. But whenever that 2021 league year begins, that's when his fifth-year option, which is for $9.86 million, the transition tag value for safeties right now, uh, that will become fully guaranteed at that time. It's not fully guaranteed now. If you were drafted in 2018 uh, and 2019, then your fifth-year option, whenever that comes up you know, years from now, that becomes fully guaranteed right at that moment. But it doesn't help out Jamal Adams. He's actually the second player in the AFC East to, to get his uh, fifth-year option picked up a few days ago. The Bills did the same for Tredavious White, who was drafted toward the, uh, the back end of the first round. But uh, you're right. The, the question now, obviously, is will there be a – extension for Jamal Adams this offseason, uh, or will he have to wait until the season begins? Uh, will he have to wait until next offseason? Joe Douglas has been consistent in saying that he will sit down at some point uh, now that the draft is over with uh, Jamal Adams' representatives to discuss uh, what a long-term deal might look like. Uh, again, uh, technically the team has uh, control over Jamal for at least two years right now for you know, about thirteen, thirteen and a half million dollars. They could always, of course, put the franchise tag on him in twenty twenty two. But that's so down, far down the road. I don't anticipate it would get to that point. It would get that messy because if it did, 
Uh, I, I don't anticipate Jamal Adams being a part of the Jets' future, but I think there'll be uh, an honest effort made to get an extension done. It's just a matter of uh, what is fair. And in all these deals, Scott, that's really what it comes down to. What do you think is a fair deal? The team's perspective is typically different than the player's perspective. Uh, maybe there's a middle ground there, but uh, you know that'll be discussed initially, uh, I would say fairly soon, but right now there are some other issues that uh, the general manager and the team needs to take care of. Adams getting his fifth-year option picked up was revealed during the conference call with Adam Gase on Monday. What else did you get out of that conference call? Anything noteworthy? Well, I thought the the biggest point, uh, the biggest takeaway from that call was what Sam Darnold's going to be asked to do in his third season. Uh, now, now Adam Gates actually has not said anything about Jamal's fifth-year option. Uh, he, he basically just used a party line, said that <clears throat> this is a voluntary program and there's nothing the team can do about it because of the rules uh, put in place by the CBA. Uh, now, later uh, in the day, Joe Douglas did, in fact, confirm my report that Jamal's fifth-year option would be picked up but in terms of some of the substance in Gase's call, uh, I thought the most interesting slash telling part was Sam Darnold, uh, obviously, right? Everything revolves around Sam Darnold uh, these days when it comes to the Jets. Uh, just you know, what should we expect in his third season? Because as you know, Scott, a year ago when Gase was hired, everybody expected Darnold to make a significant jump from year one to year two because you saw that from quarterbacks in the, in the last several years. Uh, you just saw that specifically with young, promising quarterbacks taking on and working with a new coach in his second season. You know, whether that was Jared Goff, uh, Mitchell Trubisky, you know, when guys like Sean McVay and Matt Nagy came over, uh, you know, they, they had spikes in their play in year two. So there was a, a lot of excitement and optimism surrounding Darnold's development from year one to year two. And I thought that he made some marginal improvements. Uh, I, I think he made you know a fair amount of improvement that didn't necessarily show up on the stat sheet. I think that's more about Sam Darnold than it is about anybody coaching him, just kind of maturity, experience, you know, things of that nature, getting more snaps, more reps under his belt. But uh, there wasn't a, uh, you know, a marked statistical jump that uh, a lot of Jet fans uh, we're hoping for. So now, obviously, they're hoping for that in year three and in a second year in the same system. Uh, what I thought was telling was that Gates repeatedly said that it's time for Darnold to grab hold of this offense uh, and understand the, as he said, the tiny little details of the offense. And I, I thought that Gates, frankly, missed uh, the larger point, the more important point, which is that. Uh, Sam Darnold's development, his growth, evolution, uh, his jump from year two to year three isn't simply tied to his understanding <clears throat> excuse me, of Adam Gates' offense. That's, uh, that, that's not really the right way to look, look at it. I think the proper way to look at it is that there has to be flexibility uh, with the quarterback and, more importantly, with the head coach. I, I think that Adam Gates needs to adapt his offense to Sam Darnold's skill set much better than he did a year ago. Because I know, Scott, you and I have talked about this for the past year. Uh, you know, any Jet fan, anybody watching Jet games in Darnold's rookie season saw that he had a lot of promise in December after he, uh, you know, he came back uh, 
had, had a you know a hiatus uh, when he hurt his foot. That final month of the season was terrific for him, and I thought that for you know all of the Jeremy Bates' flaws, he did a really nice job in using a lot of Darnold's strengths to the team's advantage in terms of play calling, in terms of uh, using Darnold's mobility, you know, design rollouts to the right, design rollouts to the left, uh, just things that Darnold felt comfortable with, things that Darnold was really good at. And then when Gase took over last year, uh, it was almost as if none of that stuff in December mattered because uh, he wasn't using a lot of those strengths to his advantage uh, for whatever reason. Frankly, I thought it was stubbornness on the on the coach's behalf. Uh, and, and then when <clears throat> excuse me, when Darnold missed that, those three games, came back, he had that one exceptional game against Dallas, and then really went into a tailspin for a few weeks. The you know the Patriot game, the Jaguars game, uh, it, and it wasn't really until Darnold himself uh, spoke up to the head coach and told him, "Hey, you know what?" There are certain things that I know I'm really good at that I'm comfortable with that I think that we should accentuate. And then you saw some changes made. I don't think nearly enough. And I just think that the key to 2020 for this offense and for this young quarterback is for uh, the head coach to adapt and, frankly, not radically change necessarily, but significantly make some adjustments to his offense. Because Adam Gay said last summer, uh, one of when talking about Darnold, when talking about Le'Veon Bell, and, and, and really all the skill position players, he repeatedly said that his plan was in pencil. And he was you know, willing to be flexible and willing to change things to highlight players' strengths. And that's not necessarily what happened. In fact, it's probably closer to not being true at all. His plan was not really written in pencil. It was etched in, in stone almost. And he saw that clearly with Le'Veon Bell. He did not use Le'Veon Bell to his strengths at all. And I think there's a stubbornness that was uh, there last year with Gase that really can't be there this year if, if they want to improve substantially as an offense and if Gase wants this young quarterback to take a significant jump. So for, for me, I look at it as flexibility and adaptability by the quarterback and the head coach uh, you know, must be present for this offense to actually improve. And this idea of shoehorning the young quarterback into this system would be another significant mistake because Sam Darnold is not a 35, 37-year-old Peyton Manning. Uh, you know, he's not even a 30-year-old Peyton Manning. Those two quarterbacks have different strengths and weaknesses, and you cannot assume that this offense that Gase had in Denver is going to thrive uh, with Darnold as is. It has to change. There has, to, there has to be adjustments made by the head coach. And I didn't hear that in the conference call. And maybe that's just something that he didn't mention and he's still going to do. I don't know. But as I've said a million times, Scott, you've heard me say it over and over, I fully believe that Adam Gase has a lot of good ideas swimming around in his head. But all those ideas, you know, they amount to nothing if you don't apply them properly. And if you don't tailor your scheme uh, to the skill set of the players that you have, specifically the quarterback. So it's incumbent upon Gase to to really be flexible here and build a system around this quarterback, you know, around a 22, 23-year-old Sam Darnold, not around a 37, 38-year-old Peyton Manning. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Play like a jet. Play like a jet. Manish, on Thursday, the Jets picked Mackay Becton, the left tackle out of Louisville, with the 11th overall pick. And we're going to get into everything involving the draft, your thoughts on the picks, what may have happened in an alternate reality, so on and so forth. But first, I want to ask you about an article you wrote about Becton and how he's molding his body for the NFL game. Talk a little bit about that. I thought it was interesting because, look, one of the the concerns that some of Becton's critics uh, has is his weight. He's a large man, six, what is he, six, seven. Uh, now he's 373 pounds, but... At one point, coming off an ankle injury he had at Louisville uh, at the end of his college career, he was uh, I think he was around 390 at some point in college. And then in December, he started working with a trainer, Duke Mannyweather, who works with uh, about uh, 30 or so pro offensive linemen. Uh, Brian Winters actually is one of his clients. He's had a couple other Jet players up front uh, that have worked with him. And uh, when Manny Weather got his hands on him, I believe uh, Becton was somewhere around you know low to mid 380s. And uh, the question, of course, is when a guy is that big and you're and you're worried about him ballooning to 390 plus, is well, you know, what's he actually eating? I mean, what's he putting in his body? Uh, you know, he's obviously consistently lifting weights. Uh, you know, the cardio element of it can be tweaked, but the, the big you know, part of the question for all these big guys is what are they actually eating? How much are they eating? What are they eating? What are they eating? And uh, what I thought was telling when I talked to Manny Weather after the draft was he had done uh, an initial study on what Becton was actually eating. And it turned out that Becton was kind of, you know, that cookie cutter three meals a day. And believe it or not, even though he was, you know, in the 380, 390 range, he was only eating 3,000 calories, which, you know, for me, that's a lot. You know, I, I probably top off, and I'm sure you do, Scott, at somewhere around 2,000. So 3,000 seems like a lot. But for a guy that big, uh, it actually wasn't enough. And he wasn't really hydrating. And I look, I, without getting into a whole big tangent about how important it is to drink water, I think it's crucial to hydrate, especially if you're a professional athlete and especially if you're a large human being who's a professional athlete uh, or competitive athlete at that point, uh, like Mackay Becton. So Manny Weather uh, had other people along with him kind of study the, the nutrition element of it. Uh, and Becton also worked with the Michael Johnson Performance Center, which trains Olympic cal- caliber athletes, professional athletes. And uh, they actually developed a plan in which Becton's hydration was ratcheted up uh, tenfold and to the point where now Becton essentially drinks two gallons of water per day with electrolytes and spread out properly where it's not like he's drinking a gallon in an hour and then a gallon before noon. It's, it's properly dispersed throughout the day 
Uh, and then on some days when he's really exerting himself, it's more than two gallons of water with electrolytes, which are essentially you know, essential minerals per day. Uh, and then he ratcheted it up. This is what I thought was the most fascinating part about the, uh, the nutrition element to Becton, uh, is that he ratcheted it up to the calories from about 3,000 a day to somewhere in the neighborhood of 5,600 to 6,000 a day. So almost doubling his caloric intake. And that sounds you know, counterintuitive, which is, you know, you want to lose weight. Why are you eating more? <laughs> it was just uh, uh, the amount of times he was eating wasn't nearly enough. What he was eating uh, wasn't, you know, wasn't awful. I mean, there were some awful elements to it on certain days, but uh, he just needed to improve exactly what he's eating. So he's eating a lot of vegetables. He's eating different types of protein every day. I think there's a rotation that Manny Weather told me about, uh, which is interesting, you know, five or six different types of proteins he eats. So, uh, you know, just doing this initial study and how much he was eating and how much he was actually burning, it, it turns out that he was burning, which is it's actually funny to think about. He was burning about 1,200 calories uh, when he was doing cardio exercises. He was burning about 1,100 calories when he was doing weight training and positional skill work which is amazing to, to burn that much, that much, uh, you know, off your body. But again, he's a big man. So it, it was a very interesting study. Uh, and I thought it was a smart way of looking at it. Uh, and, 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 you know, over the last six months, he is in, in essence, in the middle of transforming his body. He, you know, he, he said he wanted to play at 350 to 355. He's at 360 or I guess it was 363 now. Maybe it was like, 375, 385 when when Manny Weather got his hands on him. But he's lost about 10, 15 pounds over the last six months, and it's more than just that. It's just kind of more about the fuel that he's taking in and how he's eating, what he's eating, what he's drinking. So, uh, you know, that that's a good foundation for him when he ultimately comes to the Jets because he's still working out, believe it or not, <laughs> uh, with Manny Weather in Manny Weather's garage. He's got a 600-square-foot garage and there's basically one-on-one instruction uh, you know, with proper so- social distancing guidelines in Dallas. And uh, again, I think that's a solid foundation for Becton so that whenever team facilities open, you know, whether that's in July, August, September, whenever that is, I think uh, there's a good base there. So when the Jets nutritionists and trainers get a hold uh, of, uh, get a hold of Becton, uh, you know, they'll have you know, a solid plan a solid jumping off point so that he can, you know, maintain his weight, uh, you know, eventually get down to whatever he weight he wants to play at and, uh, you know, be effective. Because I, I do think that, you know, if he controls his weight and keeps it, you know, in a manageable area, you know, I think that the, he, he can be an extremely effective player. Uh, frankly, I think he'd be an effective player even at 375, but, uh, you know, more effective, obviously, if he was in, in at a better weight level. So, uh, you know, I just thought that was interesting because when he was drafted again, the the weight had come up uh, to me, you know, talking to talent evaluators on other teams in the pre-draft process before the Jets had even, you know, drafted him and, and before he became a, a part of their equation. Uh, the weight issue was something that the talent evaluators had brought up to me uh, you know, over the past you know, month, month and a half. Sounds like the Jets did the same deep dive that you did into his nutrition and fitness and came away satisfied, which is why they picked Makai Becton at number 11 overall. And you graded this pick an A- in the Daily News. 
There were a lot of rumblings about potential trades. We know for a fact because it was reported by Mike Silver at NFL.com and corroborated by Jaguars general manager Dave Caldwell that the Jets had a deal in place to move up to number nine if they needed to. They were going to give up the 120th pick, which ended up, of course, being LaMichael Pirine. But they ended up not having to. The deal apparently contingent on whether or not Becton or Wills were on the board when the pick was there. They were both on the board, so the Jets realized they didn't need to make that move. But there were other moves discussed, Manish. You talk about it in the Daily News. There were other trade possibilities, trades up the board, trades down the board if those tackles were gone. It sounds like at no point were they considering a wide receiver. You tweeted out something that got a lot of buzz In the hours before the draft, it was a picture of Andre Dillard. So, of course, people were speculating that perhaps the Jets were working on a deal with the Eagles that would involve Dillard. So let's talk about the process here, how Mekhi Becton ultimately ended up on the Jets, what some of the alternate scenarios could have been, and why you gave the pick an A-. minus. Well, Joe Douglas did uh, do his research and homework on uh, moving up and down the board. And, yes, the the Jaguars were... uh, a deal that they had discussed, but even earlier than that, they had talked to the Panthers at seven. So Jacksonville was at eight. They talked to the Panthers at seven. They talked to the Jags at nine. Uh, you know, I thought that the, the player, the Jaguars actually took uh, the cornerback from Florida, CJ Henderson was a, a tempting option, I would say for the jets. But uh, the reality is that they wanted one of their uh, preferred offensive tackles. And as you said, uh, and actually, as Joe Douglas said, the night uh, that he drafted Beckton was that the, the minute that the Cardinals took uh, Isaiah Simmons at eight instead of an offensive lineman, at that point, the Jets were you know pretty relieved that uh, one of the top two cornerbacks that they liked left uh, would be available for them. Uh, that being said, if the tackles were off the board, Douglas did look to move back a few spots. Uh, uh, among the teams was Tampa, and Tampa wanted to move up for a tackle as well. They ultimately get Tristan Wirfs at 14. But uh, Douglas was willing to, to move up and down, and he was willing to part with draft capital to do so to get an offensive tackle. Uh, it, it fell as, as good as I guess you could hope, uh, you know, not necessarily perfectly because Mekhi Becton wasn't the number one rated tackle on their board, uh, but clearly an investment that they believed was worthwhile. And uh, you're right, I don't think at any point Joe Douglas really seriously believed that he would take a wide receiver, C.D. Lamb, Jerry Judy, Henry Ruggs, at 11. Uh, that was never really a part of their thought process. Uh, I gave it an A-, minus, Scott, because uh, A, I'm a tough grader. B, uh, it's hard to, to get an A. Now, I did give an A, to one of Joe Douglas's picks, as we'll discuss later. But, uh, you know, Mekhi Beckton's not a perfect player. You know, we just discussed the weight. Uh, he had a drug test flagged at the Combine. I don't necessarily think that's going to be uh, an issue moving forward that's going to tangibly matter for the Jets. But, you know, as, as the phrase goes, his drug test was red flag. So that, that is a red flag uh, to some degree. So it's not a perfect pick. It's not an A. But uh, the fact that they came away with a guy who can be, frankly, a day one starter at right tackle, he's terrific as a run blocker. I think there's some 
you know, some refinement that needs to happen as a pass protector, but that's what coaching is for, right? Otherwise, why would you have coaches? Uh, I think there's a possibility he could be the day one left tackle and George Fant could be the right tackle or it could be Fant at left tackle and Beckham at right tackle. Regardless, he's going to be a day one starter. Uh, that's the plan. I think ultimately the plan is for him to be Sam Darnold's blindside protector. Maybe that happens sooner rather than later. But uh, you know, I think it's a quality piece, uh, a smart move by the general manager and by the organization. And, uh, you know, how many people are going to quabble with uh, an A minus? You know, when I was in school, I'd take an A minus any day of the week. <laughs> Just for reference, because. I did draft grades on the previous shows. I'll give my grade just so everybody understands the contrast here. I gave it an A+, but I understand the A- minus there. It's not that big of a difference. I think we both agree that it was an excellent pick. Round two is where we're going to start to really disagree, though, Manish. <laughs> Trading down from 48 to 59, the Jets get Denzel Mims, who I thought should have gone in the first round. I thought he was one of the six best receivers in this draft. There were a handful of receivers that I thought have potential to become a number one type receiver in the NFL in this draft, and he was one of them. To be able to trade down, pick up two premium picks, two fourth rounders, number 125 and number 129, and still get Denzel Mims was an outstanding move. I gave that an A+. I have no idea how you don't give it an A+. There are a couple of guys here that you say would have been good choices in your article. A.J. Epinesa, I don't understand that one at all. He's going to be a down lineman. The last thing the Jets need is anything along those lines. He's 285 pounds. He's not going to be an edge rusher. Ezra Cleveland, who's a developmental tackle, I don't see that one at all because he's going to take a while to get to the point where he can play, and the Jets had just taken Mekhi Becton anyway. And then the one thing that I will say you have a point on is the cornerbacks. I do think that you could make an argument that they could have stayed put and taken Jalen Johnson or Trevon Diggs, but had they not gotten Denzel Mims, they still could have taken Christian Fulton, who went two picks later and I thought was also a first-round talent at cornerback. I think what happened here was there were probably between 10 and 12 players that Joe Douglas really liked, and he was fine with any of them, and so that's why the trade-down happened. He ended up with both Mims and Fulton on the board. Either one of them would have been a home run at pick number 59, I think. So I gave this an A+. They got themselves a potential number one wide receiver and got two fourth-round picks in the process. And by the way, two other guys that you listed here, Chase Claypool, who I like, but he may end up being a tight end at the pro level. So there's no guarantees he was going to step in at wide receiver, and we know that they have a logjam at tight end anyway. And all due respect to Van Jefferson, who I like a lot, but he's never going to be anything more than a good receiver just because he doesn't have the physical traits. He's a really good route runner, so I think he can be a good pro. I'm pretty sure that he's going to be a good pro, barring injuries, but Denzel Mims has so much more upside than him, and I think he's a lot more polished than people are giving him credit for. I understand that the route tree isn't huge, but if you look at what he can do, the way that he can pinpoint the ball, the red zone threat that he is, his speed, his body control, even stuff like run blocking that nobody talks about. He's an excellent run blocker. I thought this was a fantastic pick, especially after picking up two fourth rounders. I gave it an A+. I think you're out of your mind to give this a B, to be quite honest, Manish. <laughs> well, B is good. So, uh, I mean, to me, you, you're obviously, I wish that you were a professor 
uh, when I was in school because I, I would have gotten a 4.0 uh, every in every class. You're, I, I, I don't give out A pluses because I don't believe in a perfect player. I guess, you know what, I should t- take that back because if I was grading uh, the Redskins pick at two, I would have given Chase Young an A+. Plus. Uh, it's, you know, I, I wouldn't even given Joe Burrow an A-plus, even though I think he should have been the first pick, because quarterbacks, uh, it, it's, it's difficult to project a quarterback being a superstar, even if he's a Heisman Trophy winner. But Chase Young, to me, uh, it, it, I don't want to say sl- – he's as close to a slam dunk as possible. So maybe I would have given Chase Young an A-plus. Uh, look, there's a lot to digest here, right? Uh, the Jets were picking uh, at 48. They looked to trade up. Uh, I don't believe that they were looking to trade up, uh, or, or I shouldn't say that. I, I guess I should say I don't believe that there was a realistic chance that they could trade up to the beginning of the second round. Uh, and I'm with you when it comes to the receivers that were taken early, uh, Chase Claypool and Van Jefferson. Van Jefferson uh, is a really good route runner, but he's a different type of player than I, what I think the Jets need. So I do think the Jets got a receiver uh, who fits what they really need right now, which is, you know, a guy who can be, uh, you know, uh, take the top off the defense type of player. Uh, the route tree, I, I don't want to say it's a concern. I don't think you can also entirely dismiss it. Uh, I asked Gase about that, actually. He said he wasn't concerned about the route tree. That's not an entirely surprising answer. You, you wouldn't expect the head coach to say he was concerned about uh, his second-round pick's uh, route tree. But I do think there, you know, there needs to be improvement in that area to diversify his portfolio, M- much like Robbie Anderson. I mean, this was a guy who had been in the league for a few years, and and uh, Gase was clear in that he wanted to expand his uh, portfolio, his route running portfolio. And I think you're going to see that with Mims uh, over the next year or two as well. And he just wasn't ready to say it the day that he was drafted or the day after that he was drafted. Uh, so. Anyway, getting back to the idea of trading up, I don't think they were willing to or really in play to to move up, you know, 15 spots or so to, uh, that high, uh, you know, to get a T. Higgins or or Michael Pittman Jr., who were the first two guys off the board on day two at 33 and 34. Uh, they could, in theory, have traded up maybe you know, eight to ten spots for Lavishka Chenault, the Colorado ride receiver, who I absolutely love. And even though he's not a burner per se, he offers diversity, versatility. I think he has a chance if he can stay healthy, and that is a, a concern. Uh, I think that he, Chenault, can uh, t- you know, be a real contributor in this league. And I thought that Jacksonville really made a solid pick there at 42, six spots before where the Jets were initially slated to, to draft. Uh, you know, Cornerback to me is interesting because I don't believe the Jets were really – invested in taking a cornerback early in day two. I'm not saying they were right or wrong. I just think that they, that was their mindset, uh, given, you know, you know, given uh, the fact that I know that they liked C.J. Henderson, I don't believe that they would have, you know, considered uh, the Utah cornerback Jalen Jefferson or Trevon Diggs from Alabama, uh, who went 50-51. So if the Jets stayed at 48. In theory, those guys were still on the board. Uh, you ripped A.J. Epinesa up and down. Obviously, the Buffalo Bills, who are, are building uh, a really solid team and have made a lot of smart moves over the last two years, disagree with you because they took him at 54. 
Hold on a so, second, Manish. Uh, I'm not ripping AJ Epinesa at all. I'm saying for what the Jets need, he makes no sense. He's not going to be an edge rusher, and they're not going to be picking another down lineman in the second round. The fan base would have stormed Florham Park, and rightfully so. They had to do something other than that, whether it was edge rusher, cornerback, or wide receiver. That's all I'm saying. I am in no way knocking AJ Epinesa as a player. I just don't think he would have made any sense for the Jets. Right. Well, they ended up drafting a kid from Florida who plays defensive tackle and defensive end. Probably you'll see him at defensive tackle more than the average fan thinks uh, later because they realize that they're going to have changes along the defensive line in 2021. So, uh, And we can discuss this later because the Jets drafted a safety and that wasn't an immediate area of need. But fans who like that pick will say, well, Joe Douglas is looking beyond 2020. So yeah, I can make the same case that uh, maybe Epineza isn't somebody they need in 2020 per se, but uh, probably somebody they're going to need in 2021. But anyway, uh, the point is that uh, he's a solid player. I would not have drafted him uh, at, at 48. He was just another good player that was in the neighborhood. Uh, I don't necessarily believe that Ezra Cleveland's a developmental uh, offensive lineman. The Vikings obviously don't believe that as well. They would not have taken him at 58 if they did. Uh, either way, uh, I thought the Mims pick was a good pick. A B is good. Christian Fulton, by the way, another cornerback. But again, I don't necessarily believe that the Jets were thinking cornerback early in the second round. Mims is a good player. He's a good pick. That's a B. Uh, you know, in, in my grading world, in my grading universe, there's nothing wrong with a B. Uh, but there, you know, there there needs to be improvement. Uh, and we'll we'll see how he fits. At least in 2020, with Adam Gase, he might not have to deal with. Adam Gase beyond 2020, but at least in 2020, we'll see how he fits. It's a, you know, it's a good pick. He was just the 13th wide receiver taken off the board. Uh, Twelve other teams believed that there were t- uh, players at his position that were better. That doesn't mean those teams will ultimately be proven right. But uh, you know, if if he was a slam dunk superstar wide receiver, I tend to believe that even though this is a deep wide receiver class, he would have been taken sooner than 13th at his position. Uh, again, a good pick. A B is a good grade. Uh, I thought that Joe Douglas started off the draft with Becton and Mims in a very solid fashion, uh, and it's hard to to really harshly criticize either of those two picks. Quickly on Epinesa, unless Jabari Zaniga is planning on really bulking up, I don't know how he's going to play defensive tackle. He's 250 pounds. Epinesa's 280 pounds. That's really what I was talking about. One guy can play on the edge. The other one is way too big to do that. And as far as LaVisca Chenault, getting back to him for a second, he's more of a gadget player. I don't really see him being a fit for Adam Gase. I think that Denzel Mims is a much better actual receiver than Chenault. And the injury problems and inconsistency at Colorado would have worried me. I would have taken Mims over Chenault all day long. But reasonable minds can differ. We're going to differ again in round three. Ashton Davis, you gave this one a C-. I completely disagree with this one. I think Ashton Davis is an outstanding player, somebody that could have gone in the top 40 or 50. We're talking about someone who was a two-time all-pack 12 selection, very versatile too. He can do kick returns on top of the fact that he's a really good center fielder at safety. He's somebody that can play 
up on the line. He's somebody that can play a little linebacker, a little slot corner. I think he's going to be a jack of all trades this year. And then he'll take over for Marcus May, who we know, Manish, is probably not long for this world in a Jets uniform. I think that's fairly obvious. And Joe Douglas saw the opportunity to strike a year early. And so he took it. I think he makes an impact right away and then becomes the guy that is the Jamal Adams running mate after that. I understand that there were some other options. Josh Jones certainly was a tempting option at 68 because of the fact that if you can get two tackles like that at this stage of the game, you might have bookend tackles for the next 10 years. But from what you hear, they really like Chuma Adoga. So perhaps the plan is you have Becton on one side and Adoga on the other side, and they didn't want to give up on Adoga. And then as far as Matt Hennessy, who I know you talk about here, Hennessy's a solid player, but I don't think he has the versatility to play guard. It's possible. The Jets weren't comfortable with grabbing him, throwing him at center, and then moving McGovern to guard. Also, I don't know how great Hennessy's going to be. I think he projects as a solid center, but nothing really more than that. He's not elite. I don't think he was an elite prospect, so there's that. I think more upside with Ashton Davis. And as far as other potential players that they could have picked, Keyshawn Vaughn. I like Vaughn, but do you really need to pick a running back in the third round? That seems like a stretch to me. And then, of course, Zach Bond. I like Zach Bond. Certainly wouldn't have argued with that pick. But Zach Bond is going to have to change positions at the NFL level, so maybe they were a little bit nervous about that. I'm not going to disagree with you that there were other players that they could have picked here that you could make a case would have been better, no question. But I think Davis is an excellent player. I think he's going to fit in really well. Greg Williams is going to love him. He's an elite athlete. He'll be an excellent center fielder in 2021. I gave this a B plus. I don't think it's a straight up home run, but I do think it was a really, really good pick. You gave it a C minus. I think you're crazy once again. <laughs> this, this is a recurring theme uh, in this draft review, Scott. Uh, look, the grades, maybe I probably should have said this right off the jump. The grades aren't just a reflection of the player in a vacuum. This is not about how good of a player Ashton Davis is. It's partly about that, plus the the needs that the Jets have currently, uh, plus when he was drafted, and also factoring in could they have traded the pick, did they think about trading the pick, uh, who's on the roster right now. So there's a lot of factors that come into play before giving the grade. So the grade is more about the pick as opposed to the player. Uh, you know, I think people will look at that and say, well, C minus, how can you give Ashton Davis a C minus? He's good at A, B, and C, or, you know, one, two, and three. Uh, look, this, let's just talk about the elephant in the room. You, you touched on it, but let's, let's talk about it a little bit closer. Uh, the Jets don't believe that Marcus May will be a part of their future, uh, their long-term future for sure. We'll see about the short-term future, but, uh, they are going to pay Jamal Adams at some point, you know, whether that's, the next month, the next three months, you know, within the next year, who knows? At some point, uh, you know, barring something unforeseen, Jamal Adams will get a big payday from this organization. So they were never going to pay two safeties big money. Marcus May, as everyone knows, came in the same year as Jamal Adams. So, uh, and he does not have a, does not have a fifth year option because he was not a first round pick. So he will be a free agent in 2021. So after this season. Uh, you know, unless he's willing to take pennies on the dollar in some kind of extension, which I can't imagine that he would, uh, I don't believe that he is going to be a part of this team. And this this pick of Ashton Davis is clear indication of that. What I thought was interesting about Davis, and we can get into details about who else was available. You touched on a couple players. 
But what I, what I thought about, what was interesting about Davis was that I don't believe that he had any kind of virtual meetings with the Jets uh, after the Combine. Now, he met with the Jets at the Combine, and then uh, Joe Douglas you know, and, and the people up in the, in the front office and the coaches, they, they interviewed you know, uh, so many different players, uh, and they did their homework on so many different players after uh, the shutdown, you know, after uh, the quarantine and and after the pro days and personal visits, private visits were canceled. Uh, I don't believe they did that with Ashton Davis. Uh, and I believe that Davis even mentioned the night that he was drafted that he did not speak to Greg Williams at all during that process after the combine, which is a little peculiar. And I, I guess that is a reflection of how much Joe Douglas coveted or valued this player. Uh, you know, Perhaps he was so high you know, in, in their slotting that it, it was hard for them to pass him up at 68 uh, that's i mean that's the only logical conclusion uh because if you if you thought that you really wanted the guy in the six weeks after between the combine and the draft you certainly would have had your defensive coordinator spend time with him virtually especially given the fact that there was so much time that was allowed by the league uh, you know one hour interviews three times a week an unlimited number of players and the jets did exhaustive work on uh, a lot of these prospects. So for Davis not to even have an interview to me was interesting. You know, I was surprised by that, to be honest with you. I, did, I wasn't aware of that, uh, partly because I don't, uh, that Davis wasn't even on my radar. But uh, look, if, if May is not going to be a part of this team uh, long-term, then Davis, yes, slides right in there. I, I thought there were better options. Uh, I, I really did. There's a lot of different options. You'd mentioned Josh Jones. And, uh, yes, I think Josh Jones and Becton potentially could have been bookends for Sam Darnold for the next 10 years. Uh, but as you said, they do have Tuma and Doga on the roster. That would signify, you know, taking Jones would signify essentially giving up on your third rounder from last year. Uh, so perhaps that was a consideration. Uh, I disagree with you wholeheartedly with, uh, with Hennessy. Uh, and I'm just going, and I'm look, I'm not telling you that I was watching Temple in the trenches for the last two <laughs> years, and I have a good indication of how good of a player Hennessy will be. But when I talk to general managers, and I ask them about specific players that they know, I know the Jets were interested in the run-up to the draft, Hennessy was one of the players that uh, came up in conversation. And at least the general managers I spoke to, obviously there's, you know, there's 32 general managers. I did not speak to all 32, but the half dozen or so general managers I spoke to during this pre-draft process, uh, all of them really liked Hennessy. Uh, some of them thought he was going to be a stud. Again, I can't tell you for certain whether he's going to be a pro bowler or not. I don't know. Uh, I don't think, uh, I don't even think the Falcons uh, who drafted him uh, will, will, tell, will know definitively, but they took him at 78 the jets were picking at 68 where they took davis and 79 so 10 picks between those two selections and Tennessee was taken right before the jets next selection uh the jets liked him a lot uh i think that they frankly would have drafted him uh if he were available and i'm not going to marginalize the fact that he is regarded as a center he doesn't have necessarily position flexibility uh, however, the guy they do have at center, uh, Connor McGovern, does have position flexibility. That's part of the reason why the, the Jets signed him, and he would have moved over to right guard. Uh, 
I, you know, truth be told, I would have gone in that direction. I'm with you on Keyshawn Vaughn, even though I like Vaughn, even though I know the Jets liked Vaughn, you know, taking a running back at 68, a little bit too rich for my blood. Uh, I, I just think that the way that things shook out, I would have taken Hennessy. You, you potentially, you could even, if you were Douglas, you could have uh, traded down, picked up an additional draft capital. You could have traded down a handful of spots and still gotten Hennessy as it turned out. Uh, I know, of course, everything is hindsight. You know, 2020 is hindsight. I understand that. I get that. I just think uh, perhaps the Jets got too cute there. They could have just uh, traded down if they wanted to. If they had just stayed at stayed at 68, taken Hennessy, uh, that I think would have been the better move. Time, of course, will reveal who was right. But uh, you know, the, I think it stings that Hennessy was taken right before their next pick at 79. Manish, we both got so fired up that I think the time flew by, and we're going to have to continue this on part two tomorrow, so make sure you tune in for that. In the meantime, follow Manish on Twitter, at MMetaNYDN. Read his work over in the Daily News. In fact, you can read his grades and see what you think, but you're going to hear the rest of them on the show tomorrow. If you haven't given us a five-star review on iTunes yet, if you could do that for us, we'd really appreciate it. It's an easy way to help out the show if you like what we're doing doesn't take much time. It doesn't cost you any money, but it goes a long way to help us out. So if you could do that for us, we'd be quite grateful. And for the latest and greatest in New York Jets podcasts, you know where to go. That's Turn on the Jets Digital and turnonthejets.com.